got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello and welcome to episode 178 of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today's episode is a mini-episode. The subject is kind of unique because I'm going to cover five different but related stories. It's a subject that I was reading an article about a few months back, and I decided it would be a perfect mini-episode topic, so I added it to my schedule. Then something happened in real life a few weeks ago that has brought this episode very close to home in modern times. But I'll elaborate more on that when I get to that part of the story. Usually, I read you a headline before I tell you the subject of the day. But since there will eventually be five different headlines, I'm going to tell you the subject first. We all know that the attack on Pearl Harbor was a very sudden and real way to bring the United States into World War II. Although Hawaii wasn't an official state yet, it was a U.S. territory, and it was U.S. troops that were attacked. Everyone knows about Pearl Harbor, but what other attacks happened on U.S. soil during the war? Well, I'm going to tell you. And before I get started, I need to add a disclaimer that these stories are only talking about attacks on the mainland of the United States. There were multiple attacks in places like Alaska, but we can save those stories for another day. Okay, our first story and article comes from the Buffalo News out of New York. On September 18, 1941, the headline says, Film shows spy defendant examining war records of U.S. Now, unless you were alive back then, that headline really doesn't tell us a whole lot. This is the story of the Duquesne spy ring, and all of this happened before the attack on Pearl Harbor. I'll start by telling you about William Siebold. William had immigrated to the United States in 1921, and he eventually became a citizen of the U.S. He started working in airplane factories and other industrial plants, since that was a pretty big business during those years. Well, in 1939, after William had been living in the U.S. for nearly 20 years, he decided to go back to Germany and visit his mother, who was still alive and still living in his birth country. But when William arrived in Hamburg, he was stopped by a member of the Gestapo, a.k.a. the Nazi police. They told him they were going to contact him in the future, and then they let him go. I'm sure William was a bit curious and probably even a bit concerned, but he went on to see his mother, and since he planned on staying there for a while, he started looking for a job. Soon, weeks started to pass, and then months, and nobody ever came to talk to William. That is, until he'd been in Germany for about six or seven months. Suddenly, he was visited by someone called Dr. Gassner. Dr. Gassner started to question William about his time in the United States, and particularly what he knew about military airplanes and equipment, since he'd been working in those factories. Then, Dr. Gassner told William that he wanted him to go back to the United States and spy for Germany. William was pretty hesitant, didn't really like the idea, but Dr. Gassner and someone who called himself Dr. Rinkin kept visiting him in hopes of persuading him. 
when they threatened his family that still lived in Germany, William gave in. He feared that he didn't have a choice anymore. Well, suspiciously, after one of the visits from the two men, William noticed that his passport was missing and that it had most likely been stolen. Since he needed it to get back into the United States, he had to go to the American consulate to get a new one issued. That actually turned out to be a good thing, because William was able to confide in the authorities at the consulate office about being forced to spy for the Germans. He told them he was willing to work with the FBI once he got back to the U.S. And just like that, William Siebold became a double agent. William acted as if he was fully cooperating with the Nazis, and he reported for duty in Hamburg. They trained him in all the important things a spy should know, like taking pictures and decoding or coding secret messages. And then when he'd passed all of his training, he was given instructions on what kind of information to gather and how to send it back to Germany from the U.S. They gave him five microphotographs with the information on it. And he was told to keep two of them and then deliver the other three to spies that were already stationed in the United States. The Germans even gave him a new name, Harry Sawyer, and they put him on a ship sailing from Italy to New York City. He left on February 8, 1940. Well, since William was a double agent, the FBI already knew he was coming, and that he planned to tell them who the other spies were. While William was pretending to be a diesel engineer, the FBI was setting up a secret radio station on Long Island, and they began communicating back and forth with the Germans. The Germans thought they were communicating with William, and they sent more than 200 messages back to him. The FBI also set up a fake office for William in Manhattan. The other spies would visit him at this office, not knowing that the room had hidden microphones and one of the walls was a two-way mirror where the FBI could watch and listen to everything that was going on in that room. One of the men who visited William's fake office was Fritz Jobert Duquesne. Duquesne was constantly changing his identity and giving false information about his past. In reality, he was from South Africa and had served during the Second Boer War. And during the time between the two world wars, he'd acted as an advisor on big game hunting to Teddy Roosevelt. But again, in reality, Fritz Duquesne was working as a spy for Germany during both of the world wars. When Duquesne visited William's office, he pulled out a bunch of photographs and plans that he'd stolen from some sort of a plant in Delaware. The plans described a new bomb that was being built. And Duquesne told William how they could start fires in industrial plants and get away with it. Another spy went to the office and told William how he was preparing a bomb, and he even turned over dynamite and detonation caps to William. Anyway, with William's help, the FBI was able to break up the Duquesne spying, and they arrested 33 different people. Of those arrested, 19 knew they were in big trouble, and they immediately pled guilty. The other 14 wanted trials. But on December 13, 1941, just a week after the attack on Pearl Harbor, all 14 that remained were found guilty. If you add up all the years that the 33 people were sentenced to spend in prison, 
it comes out to over 300 years behind bars. Could you imagine what might have happened if William hadn't decided to work with the FBI and all of that information had been leaked to Germany? We definitely dodged a bullet on that one. Okay, this second headline about attacks on the U.S. during World War II comes from the Ventura County Star Free Press out of California. It's dated February 24, 1942, and the headline says, Planes and Ships in Big Hunt for Japanese Sub Along Coast. So, going by the date, keep in mind that this attack happened less than three months after Pearl Harbor. It was still very fresh on everyone's minds. Then, seemingly, without any warning, a big, giant, 365-foot-long Japanese submarine suddenly rose to the surface of the California coast at Elwood Mesa, near the city of Goleta. That part of California is in Santa Barbara County, so picture an area that's north of Los Angeles but south of San Francisco. This area was known for its oil production facilities right there on the coast. The sun was just setting when the submarine appeared. But the submarine wasn't just there to scare people with a show of force. Nope. On the night of February 23rd, most of the workers at the oil field had gone home for the night, and just a few people remained on the site. It was about 7 o'clock, and not coincidentally, most people across the country were tuned into their radios for one of President Roosevelt's radio broadcasts. Suddenly, the workers started hearing a strange noise. It sounded like small explosions, and they thought maybe it was coming from inside the big oil tanks. But that didn't make much sense. And then one of the workers spotted the submarine less than a mile offshore, and they realized they were being fired upon. That man later said that it looked so big that they thought it must be some kind of a destroyer ship. According to the article whose headline I read to you a minute ago, the War Department out of Washington said that the shelling started at 7.20 and lasted for about 25 minutes, with the submarine firing 25 shots from just a quarter mile offshore. So what did the men do? Well, they called the police, of course. And then the submarine turned their guns to start firing on another target. One of those shells flew over the top of a nearby inn, and that owner called the sheriff, who assured him that they already knew about it, and warplanes were on their way to the scene. There was a lot of confusion after the shelling that night. One rumor that went around with some people was that the Japanese submarine was actually an attack by the U.S. government in an effort to get people on board with war efforts. After all, it had been many years since the mainland of the United States had been attacked by a foreign nation, and it definitely excited people. In another widespread rumor, some people insisted they saw signal lights, indicating that there were spies on the land communicating with the submarine and telling them where to shoot. Articles in the newspapers the next day mentioned the signal lights and flares, but said they were probably just dropped into the ocean by airplanes in an attempt to locate the submarine. Unfortunately, this rumor ended up having a major impact on many, many people. 
When the rumor started that there were Japanese spies on the coast, it pushed the government over the edge and they began moving people into the Japanese-American internment camps just one week later. And that, we know, was an absolutely horrible thing. So just how much damage did the submarine do with all of that firing? Well, since they were shooting from a gun mounted on top of the sub, and it was dark, and the sub was rolling in the waves, their aim wasn't very good, and the damage was minimal. A railing was splintered, some of the buildings had shrapnel marks, some of the planks on the piers were damaged, and the housing around some of the equipment, like a pump house, got damaged. In all, it was only about $500 worth of damage, or just under $9,000 if you take inflation into consideration for what it would be worth today. I'm glad it wasn't worse. Okay, this third attack on the U.S. during World War II is similar to the story I just told you, at least in the beginning, but it happened in June of 1942. I'm taking this headline from the Legrand Observer out of Legrand, Oregon. The June 22nd headline says, Axis Submarine Shells Oregon Shoreline. Just like when the California coast was shelled, in February, a Japanese submarine sent shells from what the authorities believe was a couple of miles from the mouth of the Columbia River. The shells landed near Fort Stevens, which at the time was a pretty old fort, and it had been there since the Civil War. When the shells started coming, the commanding officer of the fort realized that the aim of the submarine was really bad, and the shells weren't quite landing where the sub probably hoped they were. Since everything was dark in order to keep their position a secret, the commanding officer told his men to hold their fire so the submarine wouldn't see the flashes from their guns and know what their position was. Some of the shells landed in a swamp, but most of them landed in a nearby baseball field. And that was about it. Again, no real damage was done, thank heavens. But that same submarine wasn't quite finished yet. A couple of months later, in September, that same submarine launched an aircraft. Now don't ask me how a submarine launches an airplane because this was the first time I ever knew that was a possibility. And I have no idea how it works. Anyway, the sub launched the aircraft and it flew into the Oregon forest and dropped two bombs. The bombs had been designed to start and spread fires, and the Japanese thought they'd be able to do a bunch of damage if they started forest fires. Except the bombs didn't ignite as fast as they hoped, and the fire department was quick to arrive and make sure the fire was out, so nothing really came of that either. Meaning we dodged another bullet. Um, literally. Then, that same submarine went farther out to sea and sunk a couple of ships and a Soviet submarine. But don't worry, a U.S. submarine sunk the Japanese submarine the next year. I'm taking a headline for the fourth story of an attack on U.S. soil from the Daily Times out of Davenport, Iowa. This headline was printed on August 8, 1942. And it says, six Nazi saboteurs die in chair, two spared for aid to government. 
by the time that headline was printed. This story had been going on for quite a while. Back in June of 1942, June 13th to be specific, a German submarine off the Atlantic coast sent an inflatable boat with four German soldiers inside to land on a beach in Long Island, New York. They carried with them a lot of explosives and incendiary devices, amongst other destructive weapons. Then, just a couple of days later, four more Germans were dropped off to row to shore near Jacksonville, Florida. They were carrying similar equipment and weapons. The men were working together, and they planned to spend the next couple of years on the United States mainland, causing problems and wreaking havoc and disrupting production at some of the United States defense plants. By doing all of this, the Germans hoped to prove that they could attack us on our own soil. They wanted to put fear in the Americans. The Nazis had sent their men with $175,000 in U.S. money to live on and to carry out their evil plans. They also instructed them to arrive on the shore wearing their German uniforms. That way, if they got caught when they were coming ashore, they would be held and treated as prisoners of war rather than spies, which would be much better for them in the long run. In Florida, nobody saw the group arrive, so they quickly got rid of their uniforms by burying them along with the weapons, and they put on civilian clothing. Then they made their way to the train station, where they immediately left for Cincinnati. Then, in Cincinnati, they split up, with two going to New York City and two going to Chicago. But the group that landed on Long Island weren't quite as lucky as the Florida group. One of the men was still changing out of his German uniform and was in his swim trunks when a Coast Guard patrol came along. Instead of trying to act casual, the Germans offered the man a bribe to, quote, forget they had met. Well, the man with the Coast Guard was young, the night was foggy, and he knew he was outnumbered. He decided to accept the bribe to make the men think everything was okay, and then he quickly sprinted all the way back to his headquarters and reported what had just happened. Unfortunately, by the time the Coast Guard could get back to the spot, the men had already left and had taken a train to New York City. But, again, luckily, since they knew where the men had been, they were able to dig up all the supplies and explosives that the men had just buried, and a big manhunt was started to look for the saboteurs. However, even though they didn't know that they'd been caught and that people were looking for them, a couple of the Germans started to get nervous. One of them was a man named John Dash. He decided it would probably be better to turn himself in before he actually did anything. So, he called the FBI the very next day after they landed and told them that he had come to the U.S. from Germany and he would call them again when he got to Washington, D.C. the next week. Sure enough, he followed through with his confession and he was arrested after making a phone call to the FBI on June 19th. The FBI questioned him, and questioned him, and questioned him, and he told them everything. He told of their extensive training, and their plans, and he spilled the beans on the names of the other Germans involved too. Within a week, all eight of the men had been located 
and were in custody. They never had a chance to sabotage or destroy a single thing. The U.S. was even able to get their hands on all but a few hundred dollars of the 175000 the men had with them. They'd only spend a little of the money to buy clothes. Well, the men were given a military trial, and as the headline I read to you at the beginning of this said, six of the men were found guilty and sentenced to death in the electric chair. The trials and executions were all done in less than two months from when they first landed on U.S. soil. The other two men, John Dash and Ernest Berger, who Dash had confided in about his plans to confess, were originally sentenced to die too, but President Roosevelt commuted their sentences and Berger was given life in prison, while Dash was given 30 years in prison. In 1948, Dash and Berger were actually released from prison and deported back to the American occupation zone in Germany. But they were considered traitors there, and they weren't exactly welcomed back. Supposedly, President Hoover had promised to pardon both of them, but he never did. Berger died in Germany in 1975, and Dash died there in 1992. Okay, now it's time for the last of the five stories I promised to tell for this mini-episode. This one is going to sound a little familiar, because as a country, we lived through something very similar to this just last month. I'm taking this last headline from the Independent Record out of Helena, Montana. It's dated December 19, 1944, and the headline says, Huge paper balloon bearing Japanese incendiary found in woods near Kalispell by two woodchoppers. Sound familiar? I know that the first time I heard anything about the Chinese balloons flying over the United States last month, was when they were flying over Montana, just like back in 1944. Only back then, things didn't turn out so well with the balloons. The huge paper balloon that was found near Kalispell was armed with some sort of incendiary device, probably similar to the ones dropped on the Oregon coast by the airplane launched from the submarine that I talked about earlier in this episode. If you've ever been to the Kalispell area, You'll know that that part of northern Montana and into northern Idaho is nothing but acres and acres and acres of timberland. A fire there would have been devastating. The balloon had actually been found a week before the news made it into the papers because the authorities were keeping it hush-hush for the first few days. Hundreds of people in Kalispell had seen the device, though, when it was brought into town and stored in the sheriff's garage but all of them were ordered to keep their mouths closed about it, and the device was eventually transferred down to Butte, Montana, so it could be investigated further. The townspeople actually obeyed, and they later said that there were far too many of them who had fathers and sons serving in the military to jeopardize anything by talking about it. The balloon was 33 and a half feet in diameter and had a 70-foot-long fuse leading to the incendiary device. The men who found it thought they were looking at a parachute until they got a better look and saw the Japanese writing on the balloon. Well, while things might have turned out okay in Montana, 
Picnickers in Oregon on May 5th, 1945, just a few months later, wouldn't have the same luck. That day, a young reverend and his pregnant wife set out to take a group of their Sunday school kids on a picnic at Gerhart Mountain. Reverend Archie Mitchell dropped his wife Elsie and the kids off and then went to park the car. The group yelled to the reverend that they had just found something strange. As he hurried back toward them, the reverend yelled for them not to get too close to it and don't touch it. But the warning didn't come soon enough. A huge explosion rocked the peaceful setting, and in just a matter of a few seconds, Reverend Mitchell watched as his pregnant Elsie and all five children, ranging in age from 11 to 14, died instantly. One poor family lost two of their children in the explosion. The deaths of the Oregon picnickers were the only civilians to die by enemy weapons on the mainland during the war. And the Montana and Oregon incidents weren't the only times residents had run-ins with balloons. Many people reported seeing strange things in the sky. Others reported seeing explosions in the sky. Still, others reported finding remnants of what seemed to be explosions of some sort on the ground. Between the fall of 1944 and the summer of 1945, hundreds of reports came in. But the incident in Oregon was luckily the only one that caused any deaths. According to History.com, it would later come out that between November and April, the Japanese military launched more than 9,000 balloons. Most of them fell somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, but just over 300 of them made their way onto land everywhere from Alaska to Arizona, and even as far east as Grand Rapids, Michigan. But since the government tried to keep as much of the stories out of the news as possible, the Japanese thought they weren't working and they gave up on their mission. After all, they'd been listening to U.S. radio newscasts to see if their plan was working. They stopped launching balloons right before the tragic day in Oregon happened. Friends, thanks once again for listening to this podcast. I really do enjoy telling these sometimes forgotten stories, and I hope you enjoy listening to them and maybe learning something that you didn't know before. Join me again this coming Monday for a new full-size episode where I'm going to take you way back in history to tell you about a fiery day in our nation's capital. I bet you can guess what that subject will be. Talk to you later.